Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So super exciting. The guests that we have today, we're going to be talking about building, scaling, financing, you know, figuring out your way through the venture world without having any clue of what's going on in the space. But, you know, definitely he's built something really meaningful. So I think that let's welcome our guest today. I think you're going to really be inspired with his journey. So without further ado, Matt Fairhurst, welcome to the Dealmaker Show. Alejandro, thanks for having me. Uh, I really appreciate it. Nice to be here. So give us a little bit of a walk through memory lane. How was growing up in a rural town there in, in Australia? I loved it. You know, it was a great childhood. I was very lucky. Uh, my dad uh, worked in the mining industry uh, in Australia, and uh, we, I grew up in a town called Kingaroy, which is about three hours northwest of Brisbane, which is uh, where I spend part of my time uh, now. Um, but it was, a, it was a great place to grow up, lots of experiences on farms and and uh, and uh, growing up with many of uh, the friends that I still have today, um, you know, moving to Brisbane in uh, 2002 or 2003 to study at university, you know, many of my friends and family uh, moved uh, there with me. Uh, so it was a great experience, a great time, and uh, I loved it. And how did you get into the whole music thing? Because music has been a really big part of your life, especially growing up. Yeah, it has. I uh, you know I've never been particularly academic or applied academically and uh, a lot of my friends when I was at high school played music much better than I did um, but uh, you know I really wanted to fit in and be part of that so I learned uh, to play the drums and uh, a couple of other instruments in high school and uh, uh, fell in love with playing music and playing in bands and getting together with my friends and uh, other people just to uh, learn and play music. Um, in fact, after I graduated from high school, that's all I wanted to do. A lot of my friends and, and the, the band that we'd started together moved uh, with me to Brisbane. That grew into a band that was touring around Australia and uh, playing uh, lots of live shows. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think when I look back, actually, being in a band and starting a band that uh, starts to do anything uh, beyond just kind of rehearsing and playing in a, in a bedroom or a garage actually feels and looks similar to starting as a tech startup you know you're you're often very close personally and you're being very creative together trying to build something that ultimately people will like uh you know i think after uh you know six or seven years of working uh, and, and playing in bands and and struggling my way through university trying to uh, pour all of my money and attention into playing music um, you know, it was a wonderful experience, but it definitely, uh, I think, set me up emotionally for the, um, you know, ups and downs of, of starting a tech company, but all the joy of the early years kind of building something together with your friends. Um, you know, it's very powerful. And what, what, what was your role in, in the band? What, what were you typically, you know, doing there? I was, I was a drummer in the band, but also I'd say uh, probably the most technology focused on uh, how we recorded the websites that we had to build. I taught myself design uh, through that period as well. You know, when you're, uh, I was in a band in the early 2000s. Um, I still think of it as like one of the worst times to be in a band where not many people were buying music. A lot of people were downloading it, but there was no Spotify at the time. So 
the only real way at the time sort of online to get yourself out there as a band was MySpace, which probably ages me a little bit, but I'm sure we remember that together. But to have a good MySpace presence meant you had to have a great design. And that's why I really fell in love with uh, graphic design, visual design, and everything that uh, surrounded that. And that was uh, you know, a big role that I played playing in the band. Uh, I think in, in, you know, I probably took on a little bit of the management needs as well, trying to book shows and work with management, uh, work with uh, clubs or any, anything, any sort of other commercial relationship we had. I was very interested and excited by that. So it was probably the early stages of entrepreneurship and uh, enthusiasm for business as well that came about from playing events. And then after this, obviously, you enter the, the, the job market. You did a little of, um, of employment there in manufacturing companies in music. But then, you know, basically, you uh, started your kind of like the, what got you into the, into the path that you're in now was the first job uh, doing marketing at a, at a company that was doing marketing cons- uh, consulting. But you were not a big fan of that. Why was that the case? No, you know, I, I think I'd, uh, from this uh, self-taught path of design and graphic design um, and my degree in marketing at university, you know, I was building websites and a lot of visual marketing for companies sort of in or, or related to the music industry, which I really loved. Um, but I was offered this job uh, in one of the first Salesforce consulting companies in Australia uh, to do marketing for that company. And I, I said yes, and it was, it was a brand new opportunity for me. I think comparing it to what I'd just been doing, which was an industry I really was passionate about, which was you know a space that I'd obviously very passionate about, to you know uh, consulting and Salesforce consulting uh, wasn't uh, the the best, most motivating, and most enthusiastic chapter of my career. Uh, and uh, you know I, I probably questioned whether technology and tech was right for me based on on that initial move. Um, Fortunately, though, the founder of that company wanted to build product uh, as well as you know building a great consulting practice, and um, you know I, I sort of stuck my hand up along with one of the engineers there, and we built a product that he had in mind. And I applied so much of that design capability and, and design skill that I developed over the kind of decade before that um, to product in the enterprise and and you know business applications, user experience design, user interaction design, and uh, I really fell in love with product management at that stage, and that was definitely what I'd say saved me in that period, not to, not to move on, but to really stick it out and, and uh, better understand enterprise technology and, and uh, product management. And in this case, that company, the, the one that was doing the marketing and consulting, they ended up getting acquired, and you didn't want to go there. So the founder actually financed your guys' initiative and that ended up really transitioning into what we know now, you know, as scheduler. So, so give us a walk through how did that happen? What was that pivoting, you know, that that needed to happen along the way to really, you know, see the company that we know today? Yeah, I mean, it was a great journey. You know, that company did get acquired uh, about a year in, and um, for the next eighteen months to two years, uh, James and I, after sort of saying we weren't going to be part of the acquisition. And uh, the, the founder of that first company investing in James and myself to continue on with the product that we built. Um, you know, it wasn't uh, a product that was terribly successful, but that two-year period helped us kind of build a, a company of about twenty people around it. But most importantly, we, you know, I personally and with James got to talk to so many different companies in Australia, here in the United States at the time. And uh, if you cast your mind back, that was sort of 
between 2011 and 2013. This was a time when uh, mobile devices like the iPhone had been around for six or seven years, but were really only starting to reach their potential in business. So many employees uh, had them in the palm of their hands. Some companies were buying them to provide to their employees, um, but basically everyone had one. And these phones and mobile devices were reaching a point where they were highly capable. You could build really compelling, powerful applications uh, on top of them, some of which were starting to really solve pretty challenging uh, needs within the enterprise and within companies. And that was the thing that so many people that I talked to in that chapter wanted to talk about. They weren't particularly interested in the product that we were building and the problems we were solving uh, uh, in that first company or the first iteration of that company. Um, and they all wanted to talk about this problem. Part of the reason was that when you look at the challenges of organizing and scheduling work and managing people and time and place and so many of the problems fundamentally that Scheduler now addresses, there really wasn't a platform at the time that focused on those needs. They had platforms for in the cloud, for, for CRM, for finance, for HR uh, and HR systems, ERP, like you name it, there was almost every pillar within their organization was being addressed fundamentally by new platforms in the cloud or emerging platforms in the cloud, except this big area of their business, which turns out to be huge. You know, for a lot of these companies where they don't have a workforce that sits in an office or behind a desk, this is a fundamental part of how they deliver services, how they make money, and their value proposition and business model. And, uh, you know, incredibly antiquated at the time, if not paper and whiteboards and spreadsheets, then, you know, pretty clunky, very industrialized technology um, that, uh, you know, I got excited about uh, helping them solve. And uh, I, I remember uh, creating a, a Photoshop mock-up of what uh, Scheduler would ultimately, you know, start to look like as a product and putting that in front of four very different companies. One was a traffic management company with a couple of thousand people managing traffic controllers in the field. Another one was an in-home uh, nursing or care company. Another one was a hot water installation company. And the last one was a solar installation and sales company. So all very different, but all shared these same fundamental challenges. And all four of them uh, agreed to become a customer if we could build it. And that was our first $100,000 of uh, recurring revenue that we booked. And uh, two of those companies are still customers with us today. But it was really that uh, recognition and that moment that I think told both James and I that this was a problem worth solving. You know, if there were four companies that were prepared to back us and trust, trust us as, as founders and builders of product to go and solve this problem, just off a design, then, uh, you know, we, we knew that we had something truly special. And if we built it, we could build a great company around it. And it was a hell of a lot more exciting than what we've been doing. So we, we pivoted the company back down to three people uh, in a garage, and uh, the rest is uh, history to a certain extent. And in this case, I mean, for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of schedule? How, how do you guys make money? Yeah, I, I think like many enterprise business-to-business um, -business SaaS companies, this is a, a, a per-user, per-month licensing model. The companies and the customers that we serve um, typically pay us an annual license fee uh, on a recurring basis in you know usually a multi-year contract on contract structure. Um, there's a, a, a small portion of our revenue as well that's uh, driven from our professional services and implementation and support teams. Uh, these are often very complex 
very operational challenges that we're helping companies solve. So applying our software or our platform and technology to their business models and the value propositions that they're trying to uh, expand and enhance uh, usually takes an implementation or professional services cycle that we or our partners uh, will typically deliver. So they're they're the two um, most dominant revenue streams for us as a company. And for you guys, obviously getting into the whole VC, you know, venture venture world, you know, was not easy because, you know, it was kind of like the unknown. And back then in Australia, it was like very green. You know, was, there was not like a lot of venture capital firms or stuff like that. So we're talking about 2013 for the people that are listening. So how did you guys, you know, really get educated? How did you navigate, you know, that uh, that process? Uh, and how did you end up, you know, raising, you know, the money? Because up until now, how much capital have you guys raised to date, Matt? I think up until we raised our first round of venture capital, um, we probably raised about two hundred and fifty, maybe three hundred thousand dollars from what was largely family, friends, and and um, through the support of you know the original founder of the, the company that James and I worked with, and incredibly grateful for those contributions. You know, people that had backed us. Uh, with a lot of risk in the early days, um, you know, just so grateful for their uh, support and uh, financial support in those early years. But I really had no idea what venture capital was, how, how it worked, uh, how it uh, uh, could be structured. Um, uh, and uh, Australia, as you mentioned, I'd say back then was certainly in the early days of what is now a really thriving and growing rapidly ecosystem of great venture capital uh, partners and companies. Um, I had a, a, a friend actually who had just sold, or, or a guy that I knew reasonably well in Sydney, and he just sold his company. And uh, we went, I had coffee with him in Sydney and said, look, if we don't raise more money pretty quickly, I think we're going to run out of money. I think I probably had that conversation thinking that he'd be able to uh, invest given that he just had an exit of his own and uh, wasn't particularly interested in that, which is fine. But he introduced me to uh, Nikki Skavak, who was one of the founding partners of Blackbird, uh, along with uh, uh, Rick uh, over there. And uh, that introduction uh, was great. Uh, Nikki agreed to the meeting. In the meantime, I, I sort of Googled Blackbird and looked at their thesis, which was very uh, oriented around some of the, uh, around some fundamentals that were perhaps not ultra aligned with what Scheduler was doing. I think they were uh, very invested and focused on. Uh, high velocity sales motions and uh, go to market motions, bottoms up uh, growth model or, or product led growth, um, uh, and and you know Schedulo has always been a, a more of an enterprise human sale um, connected to uh, selling to the organizational buyer or leadership within a company, and the technology is adopted then by you know the workforce at large, and so uh, that was. A sales model and a go-to-market model I was very familiar with, um, having partnered with Salesforce for so long, uh, as an example. And I emailed Nikki and said, "Look, um, you know, I, I don't know that we're truly matched with some of the elements of this thesis. Uh, if you want your time back, I'm happy to, you know, not have coffee." And it was—I nearly blew it. I can't believe that, uh, you know, the future of the company <laughs> really rested on this one moment. And to Nikki's credit and to his grace. Uh, you know, he said, no, still love to catch up, love to hear your story. And uh, uh, I had coffee with Nikki and told him about um, some of our early customers and some of the customers that we were working with at that time. And, uh, you know, I think like I did, Nikki also fell in love with the potential of what we were building with these stories of very 
uh, uh, ethereal and um, hard problems to solve uh, within these organizations and just how much of an opportunity existed if we could really nail this. And I'm, I'm very grateful for the fact that he, he took that meeting despite my attempt at uh, not having it. Um, so uh, that was my very early introduction to venture capital and an, I'd say a steep learning curve uh, at that point. And again, very grateful for Nikki and the, and the team at Blackbird to sort of educate uh, James and I very quickly on, on what it meant and uh, uh, how to then uh, build a, a great sort of venture-backed company. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance you know that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition so that gap that i found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when i met my co-founder at pantera mike sieverson to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. And how much capital have you guys raised today, Matt? Uh, we've raised just over 140 million uh, uh, of capital US. And how would you say that the financing cycles have changed, you know, from going from C to Series A, you know, and, and so forth? How, how has the expectations um shifted and and how have you guys you know encountered that journey yeah i think there was probably two big themes that have happened uh, over time as we've raised money uh, for the company um through venture capital i'd say at the start like like many seed rounds and uh, very early stage rounds so much of those investment decisions were made um you know very speculatively on on the ability of James and myself and uh, the idea, the vision of what we could build if we were appropriately capitalized and the very early milestones of first customers or hitting a million dollars in revenue, for example, you know, these were, uh, I think, I think, you know, so many of those early investments were made primarily on, on the basis of trusting that James and I could do what we said we could do and, and, and that the idea was worth investing in. Um, I think as time got on, certainly perhaps past our Series A into more Series B and definitely in Series C, the uh, conversations are far more uh, quantitative and analytical. You know, how are we performing as a business? Uh, what's the efficiency and the uh, level of, of yield uh, from investment that uh, you know an investor can expect? I think still investing largely on the opportunity of the category that we're creating. You know, this. Uh, 
know, fairly disruptive category of deskless workforce technology and productivity technology uh, is incredibly compelling. Uh, but I think, you know, as time goes on and you have more runs on the board, more revenue and more predictability behind the business model, that becomes a fundamental part of your story as well. You know, the, the efficiency and, and yield of the organization um, complements what is still today and, and will always be an, an amazing opportunity, an amazing story behind deskless productivity and deskless work. Now, in your guys' case, the... Um you know, as they say, you got to always adjust yourself to the market. And you guys did a slight pivot in COVID uh, during the COVID time. So what was that? Yeah, I mean, certainly a, an interesting chapter over the last two years for so many reasons, as, as many companies have gone through. You know, Schedulo um, has something we call Schedulo Heart, and it really defines our culture as a company. Um, and that goes beyond just uh, values um, that we publish on our website or or right internally and, and talk about from time to time. Uh, and, and it goes far broader than that and far deeper, not, not just how we exemplify those values, but how we think about our impact as a company and impact on it as a team on each other and all of our stakeholders, the communities that we work in, the partners that we work with, and ultimately over time, how we contribute to uh, the sustainability of the planet as a company. I believe companies are truly uh, opportunities to create platforms for change and impact. And, uh, you know, that's a big part of how we think about our culture here at Scheduler. You know, when, when the pandemic started, um, I think our culture forced us to uh, think about our values and our impact and say, who are the customers or the organizations we're talking to that are really at the front line of this right now? Who are, who are going through the most significant challenges uh, in this chapter? And there was an organization called Bioreference Labs um, in uh, uh, New York that uh, had been contracted by a number of really significant governments and government bodies in the United States to, to stand up testing locations in those early days of COVID. And here in the US, I'm sure you would uh, remember, it was fairly chaotic uh, trying to organize to get tested. There were uh, testing in, in fire departments and gas stations and hospitals you know, all the way up to stadiums and some of the largest infrastructure in cities just to try and get as many people tested as they could. And of course, without kind of scheduling and logistics and, and uh, organization, this was becoming pretty challenging. You know, they, I picked up the phone and talked to the leadership there and they said, look, we're solving an incredibly important problem, but there's traffic jams all up, you know, in, in the street. And this is actually creating quite an unsafe working environment, despite the problem we're trying to solve now. And so we said, look, I think so many of the fundamentals of this problem, scheduling and organizing people and the capacity of uh, their productivity in a, in a testing location, the inventory of tests, and ultimately the, the booking experience or the appointment experience for members of the public, these are all problems we've solved before. Our, we know our platform can scale. And so give me two weeks, I'll go and work with my team and come back with a proof of concept. And if that works, you can use it for free because it's important for us to just help right now. And uh, we did that and uh, they did use it. Uh, and uh, a few months later, I think it reached a scale where we couldn't proceed uh, <laughs> uh, without losing a, a lot of money. And, uh, you know, I think they also wanted to make sure that it was contractually stable um, the partnership that we built very, very rapidly together. And I think that was a great um, example of how our platform can be applied to so many different problems, but also how the culture of a company can be applied to a problem. Uh, we. Help that organization and others uh, facilitate tests for 
you know, six or nine months uh, and inevitably saw the opportunity that was looming with vaccine administration at scale. Um, so we uh, sort of morphed what we built there on our platform to also accommodate vaccine administration. And uh, since then, over the last 18 months, we've worked with you know, federal and, and national governments like uh, New Zealand, uh, for example, state governments like Ontario, California, Ohio, uh, uh, and, and many others uh, throughout, throughout the United States and uh, at home in Australia and parts of Asia Pacific. Uh, and and uh, have helped those governments schedule and organize about 70 million vaccine appointments. So an incredible uh, example of the power of kind of platform and product, but also I think such a wonderful example of how a team can really pivot into problems uh, very quickly when uh, you're, you're well aligned and you really think about the impact you have on the company. And in terms of scope and size for the folks that are listening to get a, a good understanding here, how big is schedule today? I mean, anything that you can share around maybe numbers of employees or, or anything else that you're comfortable? Yeah, no, I'm, certainly uh, public information. So uh, Scheduler, I think, has just tipped over 400 employees uh, all over the world. Uh, we have about 150 here in the United States, uh, quite a big team in Vietnam, in Ho Chi Minh City, about 100 people there, uh, 130, 140 in Australia, and the rest in the United Kingdom. Uh, so highly distributed globally, but a uh, team overall of just over 400 people. And at what point do you guys leave Australia? And, and also, how do you guys go about expansion and going into other geographies? Geographies. Yeah, I mean, we've never left Australia as a company. It's still um, the center of a lot of our product development uh, and, and research, uh, as well as um, a, a really impactful go-to-market team as we service that region uh, and that market. I split my time between here and Australia roughly, but uh, Selling outside of Australia and, and focusing a lot of our attention on the U.S. started really from day one, I would say. Uh, we've always been kind of global from day one in our mentality and our uh, go-to-market approach. Um, this is a global problem that we're solving, not one that's limited to any one particular geo or another. And so, um, you know, some of our earliest customers, I'd say in the first 10 customers, uh, at least two or three of those were companies here in the United States. Um, I personally relocated at least half of my time here to the United to the US around 2015, early 2016. And uh, it's where I spend about half my time personally. Now, imagine, Matt, that you were going to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Schedule is fully realized. What does that world look like? Well, I, I think uh, I, I see this vision and this mission as uh, endless and somewhat infinite. But uh, you know, if if I was to think about success, uh, both personally and as a company, you know, we are truly creating a, a new category um, at, at Scheduler. I spoke earlier about these kind of big pillars of cloud and enterprise SaaS that were already in place in so many of the companies that we've served, but this huge gap in uh, operational productivity and mobility for the DESIS workforce. You know, that is a category that is um, new and one that we are still creating today. You know, so if we can fast forward and, uh, you know, look ahead in, in the future, um, I think success does look like our ability to have created that category um, for um, any individual within any business that's thinking about the productivity and mobility and scheduling challenges of people that don't sit in an office and don't sit behind a desk. That Schedulo is the de facto and, and default 
company that they would think of uh, as we've created this category and really helped define what wonderful productivity and engagement can look like for this segment of the workforce, which is the biggest segment that exists. It's about 80% of the workforce today doesn't sit in an office and doesn't sit behind a desk. And that's ultimately you know, this, uh, this portion of the workforce that we think deeply about every day. For me as well, I'd say that's only, you know, that, that success of uh, being recognized and, uh, uh, you know, quantitatively defining this category and serving as many customers as we possibly can is, is only one side of the coin. As I mentioned before, you know, we think deeply here about our culture and schedule our heart and the impact that we can have. And building a great company uh, with a great culture is also part of that story. You know, if, if every employee in 10 years' time at Scheduler, whether they're still with us or not, can look back and say, this was the, the best company and the best chapter of my career, um, the most challenging but rewarding problems that we worked on together and uh, the most amazing team that came together around that challenge. Uh, you know, if, uh, if everybody that interacts and works with Scheduler can say that uh, 10 years from now, then uh, I would be most happy and i think ultimately that that serves so much of our vision our mission and our culture uh, here at scheduler that's amazing now imagine if i put you into a time machine and i bring you back in time and i gave you the opportunity matt of uh having a chat with your younger self maybe that younger matt that you know was in that marketing and consulting business now venturing into doing you know his own thing what would be what would be that one piece of advice that you would give to that younger self before launching a company and why, given what you know now? I, I think maybe there's two, two big uh, things that I would have benefited from telling myself uh, right at the start. And I, I think the first one is to you know, unashamedly think bigger and uh, don't be afraid of communicating the magnitude and the scale of the vision and the mission that we have as a company. Um, I think that uh, my own personality, but, but probably a lot of Australians as well, are a little, a, a little more reserved, and I think too reserved in the way that they think big about opportunities in business. And um, I, I would definitely have encouraged myself to always push to think bigger and communicate bigger, whether it's through a fundraising cycle, whether it's through you know, hiring great people, talking to customers, thinking about the mission, the vision of the company. Um, you know, I, I'd say it's taken a long time to develop those muscles of communicating the level of ambition that you know i know we have as a company i know i have as a founder and ceo so that's one i would say the second is you know move faster and accept that um you know not everybody when they join a company is is going to be there at the end uh and i think i probably had this romantic idea that uh members of the team would join and, and never leave the company we'd all be on the uh the same journey 15, 20 years later. And um, I, I think accepting earlier that, uh, you know, people are sometimes with businesses for a chapter of time. Others actually do uh, uh, commit and, and, and last a, a long time and they can grow and are tremendously rewarded by staying with a company over a long time. But I think being more decisive and deliberate about hiring great people, bringing great people into the company and helping people grow and uh, mature. Uh, with their life at Scheduler, um, you know, uh, that uh, I think is a, is it so important for the growth of companies and advice I would have given myself for sure. I love it. So, Matt, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? 
Uh, I mean, if you don't have my email address, uh, then uh, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter uh, is also uh, fine. I'd say um, I'm usually as responsive as I can be on those channels. So reach out at any time. Uh, and uh, I do have a link on our website as well. If anyone wants to email me directly, they can on our contact us page. I'm open to uh, feedback and and, uh, and being connected with. So if they want to get in touch, that's probably they're, they're probably the, the three easiest channels. Amazing. Well, hey, Matt, thank you so much for being on the Deal Maker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Oh, thanks, Alejandro. I really appreciate it. Lovely meeting you. And uh, thanks for the challenging but uh, great questions. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.